Good morning to everyone. Welcome to A Vision for You Sunday Special Edition. My name is Melanie C. and I am from Oregon and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. The share ID for Friday, March 14, 2014 is 6043. Today's special edition is entitled Divine Direction, Turning a Mess into a Message and in essence, a spiritual awakening, a personality change. The Big Book teaches each one of us how this can happen. However simple, it is not easy. A price had to be paid. It says in the Big Book on page 25, there was nothing left for us to pick up, to pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools laid at our feet. We have found much of heaven, and we have been rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence of which we have had not even dreamed. The great fact is just this, and nothing less, that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows, and towards God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our Creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us which we could never do by ourselves. If you are as seriously alcoholic as we were, we believe there is no middle-of-the-road solution. We were in a position where life was becoming impossible, and if we had passed into the region from which there is no return through human aid, we had but two alternatives. One was to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could. And the other, to accept spiritual help. And here to describe her experience, her transformation, and applying the 12 steps, the spiritual toolkit made at her feet, is Chelsea H. from South Jersey. Welcome this morning, Chelsea. Thank you, Melanie, and good morning, a vision for you, visionaries. I'm Chelsea, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater and bulimic, and I'm nervous, <laughs> but grateful and humbled to be here today, and I feel it's a blessing for my divine director that I'm here today to bring you guys this message of hope and possibilities, and I wondered why I was so nervous today, and uh, <laughs> it's funny, I sat still so I could get centered and stay in neutral so I can bring the message without self getting in the middle. And um, it just felt like my divine director was saying to me, you know, you've always been so full of crap. This time you actually have a message to bring. So, of course, I'm nervous. You know, I'm, I'm kind of a stranger to the truth. I'm just starting to learn what it is to be rigorously honest. But I'm grateful today that I get to bring the message of hope and I'm at an early stage of being recovered, and that's, that may help somebody. There's all stages, and I'm just so grateful to come today with a servant's heart to bring my story of hope and to be useful, to be useful. Maybe somebody's still sick and suffering, you know, in the grips of this disease might be helped by something that I say today. So, you know, and, to, uh, and also to show that this is not anything that I have done myself, you know, in and of myself. I probably would be having breakfast somewhere right now at some diner or eatery 
you know, obsessing about what I was going to have for lunch as well. So thank you, Divine Director. Today I get to experience another spiritual experience, and I'm just so grateful because it brings me ever closer. And I can bear witness that there's a power, there is a love, and a way of life. And, you know, guys, I've been totally revolutionized by this thing. I have my whole way of thinking, the way I behave, I'm really centered in trying to pack all I can into the stream of life under divine direction, one day at a time, one day at a time. And again, for me, that means now that so long as I stay spiritually fit, I can receive the grace and I can live happy, joyous, and free, you know, never alone, never alone. And I'm just so thankful. I'm thankful to God as I understand it, that I'm not Gavoning on food or alcohol or shoving my fist down my throat to get ease and comfort, you know, thank God for that. And thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, thank God for them. A couple of drunks, you know, a group of drunks. That's what I heard somebody say. They called it God, a group of drunks. You know, that 12 Steps of re- uh, that Program of Recovery, I'm really grateful to that because from doing those clear-cut directions, I was able to do like what the book says, tap into that unsuspecting power that I didn't even know was deep inside of me, you know. And I embraced it. I embraced it. So today, you know, I just try to keep myself ready for this divine grace, carry this message of hope. And I'm just so grateful that um, I have a message now and not the big mess that I had when I started out, you know, marshalling my my will, marshalling it myself. I love some of the language in the uh, big book, and I try to weave it into my life so it could become ingrained in me, you know, because the most important thing in my life today is to remain spiritually fit and grow my spiritual experiences, my spiritual experiences so that I can be of maximum service and carry this message. Okay, so how the heck did all this happen? You know, because that's really what we want to know when we get on these lines. How did I stop being a compulsive overeater, chronic purger, and a blackout drunk, really, you know? So let's keep in line with the big book and let's look at the record. All right, let's see what we got here. All right, because I really can't share my story about compulsive overeating without talking about my drinking because they're kind of inextricable. I can... um Jeez, I can't even remember a time when food wasn't involved in my life, really. I'm going to sip of water here. Because one of the markers in my life about compulsive overeating are Sunday dinners, okay? The culture I grew up in, Sunday dinners, they were like these big binge, these sanctioned big binge fests. And um, actually it was family, neighbors, even the pastor sometime would come by and you know, would have meals. There was no big deal to have the pastor over for dinner. If you guys ever saw the film Soul Food or um, The Nutty Professor, that movie The Nutty Professor, they um, had different scenes about uh, Sunday dinners. And in the African-American culture, and I don't know if it's just exclusive to the African-American culture, um, I'm painting with a broad brush, but um, those, those scenes with those huge meals and all, that, that's based on reality. And, you know, the, the soulful one was serious, and the Nutty Professor one was comedic, but it still lent itself to the overall idea that love, comfort, serenity, ease, that all came with food, the cooking of it, the camaraderie around it, and it also came with a lot of liquor. Most families in the time I grew up had 
a liquor cabinet, or even a bar if you were well-heeled enough. You could have a bar and everything. But anyway, these big Sunday dinners had not only plenty of liquor and everything, also they had, like, the grown-ups table, the kids' table, that kind of thing. But each table, the food overflowed on every table. Huge hams, fried fish, catfish, collard greens, fried chicken, black eyed peas. I can st- it's like I could see that whole big thing, but all wrapped up in a big bow of love, you know, because it was just the way it was. And to gorge yourself on that was actually part of the love, as sick as that may sound, you know. And it was almost insulting if you didn't unbutton your pants from being so stuffed, you know. That was kind of like a sign of respect and love and all. So, so I kind of grew up to... Um, you know, equate love and food, liquor, all kind of swirl together, and it gave me this great effect. It was effective like this wraparound love. So I kind of, you know, it was the sensation like they talk about that remains elusive. You know how they say um, if the sensation is so elusive? Well, that, that sensation became actually elusive for me, and I would spend decades, decades trying to chase that feeling. And, uh, boy... I can remember in my eating career countless times, countless times that I would be um, preparing, living alone. These are the times I was living alone, making those full-course meals like that, full-course like that on a table, replete with liquor. I'd have my drink of choice because, again, my drinking liquor was like having a milkshake with my meal. My drinking wine and whatever would be my beverage with my meal. It seemed to be my normal. You know, that was my normal. It didn't seem out of character for me. But I can remember many, many times chasing that effect, that effect of that love that I got from those Sunday dinners, you know. Even though down the road it would be killing me and everything, after a time, like it says in the big book, I couldn't differentiate the truth from the false. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. Because it all seemed normal to me to cook up a whole ham, fry up a ton of chicken, fish, bake, bake whole pies, cobblers, everything, everything. Try to replicate the whole scene. Same thing with the sides, all those greasy dishes and the thick macaroni and cheeses and whatnot, all that. I'd play it out to the hilt. I'd even set the table. There's a lot of insanity going on there, but at the time, who knew? Who knew it was my normal? I felt like it was the thing that I was supposed to be doing. It seemed just fine to me, you know? And, you know, the only time that, you know, I was, again, searching for that click, achieving that Sunday dinner level love, just after it, seeking it. You know, it's funny because we have a family motto, and maybe this was part of it ingrained, too, because it was like the more you eat, the more you can drink. And perhaps how that, that's how my drinking and eating got intertwined, you know. And um, it just kind of went with me throughout my life because, Really, when I was uh, born, I was just a little incubator baby, actually. And I have some Polaroids that I was looking at prior to coming to give this talk. I was scrawny. I was a scrawny little kid. I was, uh, had the skinniest little legs and everything, you know. And it wasn't until I went to Maryland to visit my grandma, and uh, I came back a chubby, this chubby little adolescent, you know, and from that on, I just seemed like I could never get enough to eat. And down at Grandmom's, we had, again, <laughs> the love, all those foods, the fried foods. I mean, I even enjoyed fried okra. 
Okra is kind of like, you know, I'm sure most of you know what okra is, but it's not usually a child's favorite food. But because it was fried and breaded and everything, it was one of my favorites. So I, I used to enjoy that. And about that time, too, um, when I was that little chubby adolescent is when I started sneaking those drinks from my parents' liquor cabinet. And uh, that started becoming a regular habit. So here I am, chubby and d- eating and you know, drinking, sneaking little drinks and stuff here and there. I always had, I always liked the taste of like blackberry brandy and stuff. And I know I should, but the, the sting and the burn was fine because I would eat. And then I knew I would be able to get something to eat because I had drank something. You know, I guess I was, again, you never know what the mind is thinking, but who knows back then maybe in training so I could live up to the motto, the more you can eat, the more you can drink. I don't know. But anyway, I was a chubby adolescent. And then by the time I was a teenager, I was just plain old straight up fat. Plain old straight up fat and just a little happy drinker then because I was drinking regularly then, filling up those bottles with water so it could look like um, nobody had drank it. But little did I know, my siblings were doing the same thing, so I could only imagine what our parents were, what was going on when they would get those bottles. And nobody ever took uh, the blame for it, (laughs) myself included. But that's what we did. <laughs> so anyway, it wasn't long with me being all fat like that before the demoralization and the consequences of that kind of behavior set in. And i give you an example. Um, my sister's wedding. Oh, my God, for weeks and weeks I obsessed about what kind of food was going to be served at the wedding. I was, like, thrilled during the planning when the uh, food part was being talked about. I had already plotted which things I would get first and which things I would get back with and which things I would take for later, you know. And I I made this sacred promise that I was going to not gain any more weight because the dresses were being special made and they were like these little strapless dresses and they only had the spaghetti little straps on them. So my um, dress <laughs> had to be end up getting special made, special made, because, of course, that sacred vow I made was easily broken, easily broken by me just eating and drinking. So the consequences were I had to have a special maid, couldn't have the spaghetti straps, no regard that it was my sister's wedding and everything and all, you know. You know I always, and again, it's odd because I always had this desire to want to be unique and everything, but I'm sure not in that kind of way to where my dress had to be the only one made special. Couldn't have the spaghetti straps, had to have the extra, extra wide bands, the big boulder holder straps. You know, that's what I had to have. I couldn't have those little spaghetti straps. And I'm sure that ruined, for, in hindsight now, especially after doing this work, it ruined her day. That, that her picture of her wedding had to be marred by my behavior from eating and drinking nonstop and get it growing out of the size that had been originally ordered, just so, you know. And then I get to the reception as if that wasn't enough, and the damn dress splits. <laughs> it split just, and again, just not enough to make me stop eating. Instead, use the excuse, I was grateful, because I, I was used to sing with bands back then, and our band had been booked for the wedding, so I used the excuse that I had to go get changed for the wedding, but the damn dress had split, you know, and I, and later you'll see this, this is not the first time that I had used singing to, uh, camouflage what I've done for the different results and, and ramifications for, uh, my overeating and alcoholism. Yeah. But cause God had really blessed me 
the creator blessed me with a gospel voice, you know, one of them rich, strong, vibrato, booming voices. And I had a lot spread over a lot of octaves. And God had truly shed his grace on me to be able to sing literally from the rafters. And the first time that I realized that I could sing, I was 11 years old. It was Easter Sunday at the Baptist Church. <laughs> and um, I sang, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord? And it was, the, uh, I mean, the congregation was all, you know, and I 11-year-old kids singing. And I ha- even then I had a full voice and all. I had been blessed. Again, ungrateful life would take that away. But I just, I felt an overwhelming love in the, in the church. And it washed over me. And it was an effect, again, that I would try to chase and get for decades, for decades. It was like a newfound thing, and I wanted after that. And I remember going home telling my mom that, that was, this is when the delusion started. I went home and told my mom I was going to be a star. I think I took the wrong lesson from that feeling I got, <laughs> much like Bill in the cathedral, right? It's just odd the way this program works. So anyway, I'm... Now I have the delusion I want to be a big star. I didn't thank God for anything then. I didn't. It wasn't even my head. It was me, me, me. Really, from an early age, from the start. So, and I had I had been raised around music. My mother used to sing in the churches, and uh, my aunt was an opera singer, and we. Uh, my stepfather was country and western. He loved country and western music, and we had like. Sonny James, Eddie Arnold, and all those, Loretta Lynn, all that stuff, the Grand Ole Opry, of course, and Charlie Pride. Charlie Pride was an African-American country and western singer, and I was going to, to do duos with Charlie Pride. That was going to be, and of course, it wasn't be enough for me to do duos. I was going to have to be the first black female star of the Grand Ole Opry, you know. It had to be big. It couldn't come small. I was trying to achieve an effect, you know. That's really what it was. So I was, that singing in the church feeling, the Sunday dinners feeling, chasing it and chasing it. But again, as quickly, you know, how this disease progresses, it, those dreams and all just morphed into delusions and illusions of grandeur, you know, and then all the insane behaviors and actions. I, you know, I would just spend decades trying to get that other feeling, but then doing all the wrong things, running my life on self-will early, in an early time, you know, and then living as a lone wolf for a long time, like they talk about in the big book, that lone wolf. I was a lone wolf. I, no joke. I was a lone wolf. And early, early on. And I, I don't know. And it was funny because I ended up um, getting um, into a company, into an opera company. And the way I got into it, my aunt, the opera singer that I mentioned, she had a lot of music in her house, always of the classical kind. So I, I kind of gravitated to it, and I just loved Leotine Price. I loved her. I actually wanted to, again, never could I just let Leotine be Leotine. I had to get in on her show and be involved with her show and become a big star that way. So then that became the whole thing, you know. And I was drawn to it, though. So my aunt hooked me up with this teacher so I could learn how to, classic, to sing classical music. So anyway, I did all that, and I got the lessons, and I did, and I really, really gravitated to it. And I thought then, and kind of like Bill, I had arrived. I had arrived. J-Reeve. And so again, you know, I'm going on and on. Things went well for a time. <laughs> Things went well for a time. <laughs> we know where we get that from. And so anyway, I'm traveling around, 
mainly doing gospel music and arias and stuff like that, you know. But during this time also, I start to learn about the seedier side of what it is to be in the entertainment field, you know, the live performance field, and then sex and older men. I got attracted to that type of lifestyle. Inappropriate sexual behavior followed real quick, just as quick as everything else went in my life. That went too. And me in this quest looking for that click, I started and I thought maybe the sex would be the one that would bring that quicker. I thought maybe that would happen quicker. So now it's not only food and liquor, it's sex inappropriate behaviors around it, you know, and of course things went south pretty quickly, pretty quickly, you know, I'm traveling around and everything and all, and like the book says, there was tears, many weeks spent with tears over misperformances due to drunkenness, you know, and with that kind of inappropriate behavior, of course there were trips to the doctor's office, you know. Yeah, things got low pretty, pretty quickly with me and my eating and all that drinking and sexual indiscretions and whatnot, as the big book says, they assume more serious proportions, a lot more serious things now. It wasn't just the little happy drinker or, you know, the teenager who's just, you know, getting fat and it's not a big deal to her. Oh, maybe it'll come off easy. It'll get off easy. No, no, no. A lot of unhappy scenes in my life at this time. And this is where the whole mess starts to come in, you know. And this whole idea of being a huge star and everything. But how was I going to do that? Because by now the bloom was off the rose with this opera thing. You know, all, it had been soured by adding in the inappropriate behaviors and all. So I was, again felt restless, irritable, discontented because that hadn't worked out. Seeking that click, trying to do that. So I needed more. Like anybody who's on any kind of thing that's addicted, more, 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 more. It's not enough anymore, and you need more, and your resistance builds up, and you need more. So I needed something else besides opera because that was getting boring. So by this time I'm in my teens, my late teens, 17, I think I was 17, maybe 18, and uh, things, tra- things had changed drastically at home. Miss Alice, that's my mom, um, she and my stepfather, their living situation changed and everything, and she became a single mom now of six young kids, six kids, not young, because I was the youngest and I was a teenager, but six people who still needed attention and stuff, too, because we're stair-step kids. Some of them were out working, but still, at that time, you could stay at home with your parents and, not, and actually work and everything, too, and having a, a, a multifamily unit was not a big issue. Everybody didn't have to be me, 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 me oriented. We could be a family unit and help and keep the family home and still wait until you were really ready to get your own place without having to, you know, struggle and all. That was a period in time. But, again, she had been a single home and everything. So, anyway, we weren't hitting it off. My brother was um, managing an apartment complex in the neighborhood adjacent to us. So I moved out. I moved out. I got a fake ID. Because I was big for my age, too. I got a fake ID, and I went and I got um, a job at uh, McDonald's. That was a dream, dream job. I got to eat. (laughs) I got to eat untold sums of food. 
And, you know, it was something. Because, again, I was big for my age. I looked like I could be at least 20 easily, easily, you know. And um, I was getting fatter and fatter at the time. I was buying liquor in the evenings with that fake ID and all. And being big, you know, folks don't really ask anything. And especially if you're you – because know, I was still a good-looking gal. I was just, you know, I was getting fat, but I was still good-looking. And, um, you know, that could play a lot in your favor when you're into trying to get booze and stuff and – you know, stuff like that illegally, but you, it works. <laughs> so it wasn't long, though, before I started having men over to the a place and everything. And I don't know, my whole personality started to change, especially once again when all that inappropriate behavior came in. I used to start hitting the bars, started hitting the local bars then. I would really only gravitate to the ones that had bar food. And it had to be full food. It couldn't just be no damn peanuts. That wasn't enough for me. I needed full bar food preferably wings. If they had those wings, I would be there, you know, and gobbling up stuff, drinking booze, and all that stuff was in full swing, full swing, full swing. I mean, even stumbling home, I'd be the one that you see stumbling out to the car with some somebody, Mr. Who, who knows, I've forgotten the name probably by then, and uh, throwing up in the parking lot, getting in the car, and I don't know. I, I just knew I was promised that I would get a bottle and a meal because that was my thing. Take me out to get something to eat because the more you eat, the more you can drink, <laughs> you know. But I was compulsively eating, compulsively eating and drinking. And like it says in the big book, now it would cease to be a luxury for me. And my voice was starting to suffer from it too, you know, because this time, it be, now that it's a necessity, and I need both of them in large quantity to get this kind of click thing I'm looking for, you know. I'm waking up with strangers and stuff and all, and my brother's like, you know, you got to get out of here, this kind of stuff. I can't have this going on and stuff. So, of course, I'm mad at him and everything, and I feel like he done, you know, he did me wrong throwing me out and everything and all. I, where was I going to go? Well, I had to crawl back to Miss Alice's. Got back there, and I'm all, you know, we cannot get along. We can't get along. So anyway, I, I'm older now, and I get myself a job as a dispatcher for some kind of, it was a, a worldwide electronics company. And um, I go there, and I work, and I get involved with the manager of the company. <laughs> See, I go moving around, but self still kept coming with me, the broken self. The drinking, the liquor, all the different, you know, maladies that go along with that. That came with me. Anyway, this company sends me to Texas, and I get out there, and I hook up with one of the managers out there, and all this, these three little things that I'm doing that I think are helping me control my life. I hook up with the branch manager, and next thing you know, I'm moving to Texas. I'm moving to Texas now. Just crazy behavior. And then at that time, I mean, I, I, I think at that time I was a champagne drunk. I loved champagne at that period, too. And for some reason I thought that if I had champagne, I would behave better and it wouldn't be as much as having the hard liquor. So, of course, I switched to just that. And then I started eating salads then, too, because it was more important to watch my weight because men were actually interested in me. So... Fast forward, I'm there for a while, and it's like, you know what, this isn't, this isn't the stardom I wanted. I, I'm not going to be a star here in Texas. So I move. 
I, t- I moved to Atlantic City because that's where I'm going to get a fresh start, fresh career. Everything's going to be fresh. And this way I can go ahead on and get on route to being, you know, to stardom. I had goals. I had goals. So anyway, you know, I figured, too, that it would wipe out, you know, all the hellishness of the last years that I had been um, bullshitting around, not getting shit done. So anyway, I moved to Atlantic City, and Ventnor and Margate has a huge theater area and everything. So I throw myself into that, you know, and I'm still having my salads and stuff and everything, you know. And um, I'm older, kind of tapped out a little, used up some, not as spry as I was or anything. So, you know, the messes in my life piling up and everything, I got to do something to get this weight under check because I'm here in Atlantic City. I was working at the Golden Nugget at the time, it was called. And everybody here is thin. Everybody's thin. You know, and one of the girls I was working with, she, oh, God, what a, I just thought she was the greatest, greatest thing. You know, that it was my ego was to, I needed to look like her, and then I'd be able to be this renowned star that I was going to be. So enter bulimia into my life. This, she taught me everything about bulimia, and the rest she didn't, I picked up on my own by the time I left Atlantic City and moved to New York, because that wasn't long before I did that. So I learned how to do bulimia there. That worked for a while, and I really dug into it when I got to New York because I moved from Atlantic City because I wasn't able to be the star there. I thought that working at the Golden Nugget, I guess by osmosis, would make me some kind of star, but that didn't happen. So the happiness truck didn't pull up, and I'm left alone with that. Fast forward to moving to New York City, and that's where I really learned in the theater district because I threw myself into that. That's where I really learned how to how to handle my bulimia. I shit the stuff I learned in Atlantic City paled in comparison by what I learned on the boards, and I really threw myself into it. I took I studied Meisner. It's a method of uh, acting. I took tap. I took jazz, all kinds of vocal lessons, but I would only study with those that had worked with you know, some of the stars, and I really did well for a while. Again, like the book says, all went well for a time. All went well for a time, you know. And theater life, that is the life for pre-dinners, after dinners. I mean, drinking everything, eating, drinking, eating, drinking. I mean, so much went down, so much went down. And then I would meet uh, somebody who would introduce me to OA for the very first time, and uh, she was one of my directors, directed my show. Uh, I was in a show at that time, um, and uh, she was in OA, and she had um, she had actually found a solution. And I came in through uh, Big Book and how it was. Now, I had learned how to eat and everything based on what their principles, the, the how principles were and everything, and then um, – I got sober the same time. I went to an AA meeting the same night I went. That was March 28, 2004. And all went well for a time, and I um, practiced the um, food plan, never the steps, and it was a 12-step program, and they actually used the book. But I just really went in there to lose weight, and I did, and I left. And I mean, I made some superficial friendships and stuff and uh, lost uh, over 100 pounds. But out the door, I had business as soon as I lost that weight because that was really what I went in there for. And she still worked with me on shows and stuff. And after I had lost the weight, excuse me, after I had lost the weight, 
I even I got even more egotistical and arrogant, you know. And I was already in I was in the theater now. I was just steps away from stardom, but things got worse. They didn't get better, you know, because I was still eating and drinking and now purging. So my voice started changing. My voice started changing, and the roles weren't coming as easily. And then depression set in, and then more drinking and more drinking and more depression and more depression. And then before you know it, I'm, I'm just a rag. I'm just a rag of a person, you know. All the, started frequenting pubs became regular, gorging myself on food and drink, just, you know. I had this insatiable quest for that oneness that I was looking for, that click, and I just couldn't find it. I couldn't find Easter Sunday morning singing in the choir. I couldn't find the Sunday dinners. I, I was, by this point, I'm selfish, dishonest, total self-will run riot, like the book says. You know, Every structure I built, I had pulled down. Crushing blow. I was truly a, a mess, and I felt like build it, I was surrounded by quicksand, stretched out, bloodied, beaten, to a pulp. So I leave those rooms, and, uh, you know, I, not long before I'm back in the food, and the weight get coming back on, and this, only this time the purging's not working for me. It's not working for me, you know. Fast forward. What happened? Believe me, was supposed to be the answer. That's not working so I don't pick up the drink, I pick up the food even more. I leave the drink. I'm a dry drunk for nine years in this thing, in this program, for nine years, from 2004 and March 28th. And I'm just a dry drunk, you know, walking around, stark raving crazy, and no, just feeling I had, what was the point? I was living alone by then and everything. But then something happened, and here's what happened, because that's what it was like. So here's what happened. One year ago, on this very date, March 16th, 2013, I walked into a big book panel meeting about we agnostics. Now, I'm an agnostic, and that's the reason I went to the meeting. But I went there because I've been hiding out in we agnostics for the whole nine years that I'm in the program. Saying and just just reading the title, not even knowing anything about the chapter, just saying I'm an agnostic. We agnostics. They say that we agnostics can be in here. I had no idea about the content of it. I just assumed, and being the liar extraordinaire I was, I just assumed that you know I could develop any kind of story about we agnostics. And since I am agnostic, it would apply. Anyway, March 16th, one year ago today, this is how this program can be done and your life can be changed. You don't have to sit around in these steps. Anyway, I, I um, get into this panel and I have my three Ebbies, I call them, in front of me. And these folks are talking and their message has, like the big book says, depth and weight. I am blown away by this stuff, you know? Wow. You know, I'm sitting there a mess, but I'm actually hearing stuff that makes sense. They're talking about something that I'm interested in. I mean, you know, I'm disturbed, yet comforted by what I'm hearing. And that, I would find out later, is what people need to be. I've come to disturb the comfortable and to comfort the disturbed. And I, I just felt that something about it, you know, so I was disturbed yet curious. So afterwards, I go up to one of my Ebbies, who would later become my guide, 
And thank you, Didi. I call my divine director Didi. And thank you, Didi, a kindred spirit. I get to be a kindred spirit with this great woman. She guided me through this process. She, she, who would guide me through the process. But I was a mess at that time. This is March 16, 2013, before I even started really cracking open the book. I'm a mess, raging, still raging and everything about all the bullshit that's happened to me, right? All the disgruntled and everything. I'm still not a star, you know, stark raving sober. And I'm abstinent at this time, too, by the way. So my mind has got a full, full-fledged license to screw around with me. <laughs> and I'm not, at this point, purging. But the ramifications of doing, shoving my fist down my throat, my, I guess my voice is all screwed up. I'm losing teeth. And, I mean, I'm just a wreck. And my hair, I had to wear my hair in a different way because in the center, I had been, so much of it had come out between me taking it out and it naturally falling out from all the different abuse. Anyway, I'm just a mess and mad at the world, mad at the world. You know, a dry drunk, white knuckling it. Wow, what could be nicer? <laughs> so anyway, I'd been, I'd been isolating and everything. So I crawl back into this meeting and I see my three Ebbies. And I'm sitting there thinking, how can I possibly get rid of this frustration, despair, terror, and bewilderment? You guys, you know, a lot of us on the line know that. We call that the hideous four horsemen, those guys galloping around my life day after day, right? Wreaking havoc, leaving, in, leaving me a complete mess of my own making, I would find out. <laughs> Insecure, dissatisfied, wilding in, in misery, right, over past things that didn't go my way feeling all hopeless and everything, just a, a totally uncomfortable in my body. So it, just to the point where what am I going on for? What is it about? My knees were killing me. When I was walking into that meeting, I, I was down the flats. I couldn't, couldn't even wear even a little tiny heel because of the stress. I had put on so much weight, so much weight. All my dreams had been deferred. You know, I had been beaten. I had truly been be uh, beaten down. So I got these three Ebbies, three flimsy reeds. Took it. <laughs> my divine director has a great sense of humor. Dee Dee was like, you know, we got to send this girl three of these flimsy reeds because we didn't handed these things out before. Because someone came to me with this solution before. And I not only balked at it, I bristled at it, I barked at it. <laughs> But anyway, these three flimsy reeds, and I, I reach out and I grab one, finally, finally, I reach out and grab one, right? And it really wasn't until I walked through this process, did a thorough searching inventory of myself, and, you know, even before that, before I really realized how fearful, how afraid I've been of everything, because fear had me cornered. It had me cornered, and I just eating, eating to get numb, to kind of drown it out and everything. I, I didn't realize how much fear I had. And even though I would remain, you know how you get all remorseful after you do all that eating and everything, you start crying and all that stuff, vowing it's not going to happen, but I would do it again, and fear, fear would keep me from wanting to go back to the room because I was ashamed. I was ashamed, I was ashamed, but not ashamed enough to put down the food, just ashamed that the food had beat me again. Because each time, you know, I thought that it was going to be different. But food won again, and it didn't even matter that I grew up, grew up to a size 32. Could only shop online at that point. 
but I still found myself surrounded with boxes, bags, cartons, in my case, buckets, you name it, right? That and all the luggage, <laughs> all, the, all the luggage that I've been carrying around and everything that, you know, in this obese body and this broken heart and mind and soul, I would find out later. And I'm walking around like this, and I'm sitting there, and I took the read this time, you know, because I just, just could not. I could not go on. I was really beaten to a pulp. And food and liquor had basically become my pimps, you know, in the vernacular of the life I was living. They had become my pimps. They were my master, you know. But I'm walking into this meeting, and this is how bad my mind had got under the illusion that nobody's going to notice that, what's going on on the inside, right? Still delusional. <laughs> Thinking, I'm walking in there, oh my gosh, well over 325 pounds. Well, just about to tip out of every category, the line I draw in the sand, you know, when I get to 200, I'll stop. When I get to 250, I'll stop. I just finally erased the line and just, you know, succumbed to the food just to come to the food, but I had the illusion that nobody was going to notice. Nobody would even notice, you know. They're not going to notice that, it, you know, I did that 90-90 meeting, that 90 meeting in 90 days thing again, and I'm still sitting back in here again with all the weight I lost, plus some, plus some. Delusional, because King Food won out. And my, I believe the mind, I believe the lie that it told me again, again. So I'm sitting there, and I grabbed that read this time, and I'm grateful that I did, you know, because even though all, everything inside of me was, like, totally against the God talk, you know, didn't want to hear anything, but this was the blessing, thankfully. <laughs> this was the blessing that in this whole maelstrom, you know, they talk about that in the big book, all that monkey chatter swirling around and all of self-will that I've run it on, this the woman who would become my guide, my kindred spirit, I really feel she is, told me I had tombstones in my eyes. And that may have been the phrase that God sent through. Because, thank you, God. Thank you, Divine Director. I'm so grateful. Because of that, because I was in that condition, I was able to pick up that spiritual toolkit that she laid at my feet. Pick it up. It was only a beginning. Because I had to take all the 12 steps. It couldn't be no more recovery a la carte. I had to take them all. I had to take them all. Couldn't do any middle-of-the-road solutions, I would find out. And I had to shut up and follow the directions of this beautiful person who had walked this path. She had walked this path, and she had reached out with that flimsy reed. I had grabbed hold. I grabbed hold. And I put down the food, I put down the food, and we cracked open the book, and we got started. We got started. And I found out that, as my guide likes to say, if it's door number one, you can be doomed to an alcoholic death, or door number two, you can live on a spiritual basis, right? The book tells us they're not easy alternatives for us to face, right? No door number three, no free spins, no free spins, you know. So I engage with this. I engage with this process. I shut up. I keep quiet. I do what I'm told. I no longer am doing any more investigations. 
all those things, the discovery, the evidence is in, okay, the evidence is in your compulsive overeater, okay? Why is of no consequence at this point, because wherever you're at, there you are. I am there, you know, and you're dying during this investigation, miss, so let it go. <laughs> you know, I'm just paralyzed by overanalyzing the whole thing, so... And now my experience shows me that the why is absolutely of no consequences. I am a compulsive overeater of the hopeless variety. I'm an alcoholic. You know, I was dying by the minute from these diseases, bite after bite. I didn't have the luxury now to stay stuck in the quicksand. People on the shore yelling to me, drop the baggage. I heard somebody tell the story of that uh, with an anvil, and it really stuck in my mind about me carrying all these bags and baggages, even steamer trunks filled with all the wreckage of the past, and I'm hanging on to them. They're telling me to drop it. Come ashore. Drop it. You're drowning, girl. Put it down. So I finally drop them, and I go after this program with the same vigor, the same zest and earnestness that I did when I was marshalling my own will to only be an utter failure. So I go after it, and the first thing I did, put the food down, we cracked open the book, and we got started. We got started. And wherever I was at, I dug in. I dug in. I leaned in. And um, I like the way I hear this say, little by slowly. Um, big book uh, teacher that I heard say that I love that. I love many things that this uh, teacher says, but among them, among them. But my guide said that I could lay aside all the stuff I know about God. My guide, um, she said I could define what God could mean to me. My own conception, however inadequate, would be enough for the start. So I was given a blank canvas, and I was like, oh, my God, I get to choose because, I mean, when I grew up you, in our religion, you did not question God. God would be vengeful. God would not have that. You know, God was God. <laughs> you don't get to make no conception. So however inadequate, I got to do that. And it hit me hard. You know, that hit me hard. Like it hit Bill hard. It hit me hard. Hit me hard. Because I always thought I would go to hell for even thinking about another God. You know, I, t- I was told he was jealous. Our God, the Lord our God is a jealous God. Oh, my goodness. How human of him to be jealous? Really? Mm, okay. So I'm not going to do anything to make that God upset, and I'm certainly not going to turn my will and my life over to that God. So anyway, I got permission. I got permission to make my own conception, however inadequate, and that was my start. I was able to do that. And as soon as I was willing to go to any length, and shut up and do what I had to do, do what I was told. Every step I was working on, I would lean into it, as my uh, guide likes to say. I'd lean into it. I even did extra stuff, especially because I wanted to know what am I getting involved in? What do I need to do? How, what's my posture supposed to be as we walk through? Do I just make the calls to her and then not do anything? It's not going to happen by osmosis. So I became a seeker. I became a seeker, only this time I was actually finding shit. I wasn't just compiling a bunch of stuff and not doing anything with it. And I was doing what I was told and following through, and I went through the process. And each step we took, build on the next one, the next one, the next one. 
And before I know it, little by slowly, things started to get better. And I started to do my amends, and I started going out, and each one I did got more and more, more and more better, better and better. And then, again, I, I liken it to something I heard um, someone talk about a dimmer switch, and that's what it was like for me. But during my amends, before I was halfway through, I had gotten um, rid of the most egregious ones, you know, um, the ones that the biggest ones that had to be dealt with first, the, the ones that I could clear away to start at least having some of the sunlight come in, you know, little rays here or there. And then the more and more I cleared it away, the dimmer switch got brighter and brighter and brighter. And before I knew it, the rooms in my heart were just illuminated, illuminated. And I started calling these amends freedom junkets because I started feeling freer and freer and freer, you know. But again, I had to take action. I couldn't just, um, I couldn't just sit there and expect it to happen or just expect to call only on the days I was supposed to call and read or, and then not do anything to grow in any kind of way or understanding of what my role would be and how my posture would be now. So taking that action with my Abby, with my guide, you know, and feeling that power starting to come in, I was able to uh, build a foundation, a foundation that was solid. I laid my cornerstone, got my keystone and set, you know, step one, willingness through despair. I had that. I had that. I was in total despair, and I became totally willing. And then, you know, I started listening to a lot of audio about it, listening to other speakers, hearing the truth, and little by slowly, little by slowly, my total sights and sensibilities started to change. And I started not striving for those feelings of the Sunday dinners, not striving for the applause that I got from the church, but for that feeling I got when I was awashed, when I was awashed and felt complete and whole. Wholeness was starting to come upon me. That, that malady of the spirit was getting healed, and power began to flow in. And the beauty and grace was that I started recognizing it. And I wanted more. I wanted more. I was ravenous. I wanted that spirituality. So these days, you guys, I, I do a lot of seeking of deeper understanding of the fourth dimension. Because what happens after we recover? Now that's my focus. Living in the fourth dimension is tough because self still wants to run the show, you know. And I have to be smacked down on a regular basis so that I can live in the realm of the spirit, not, you know, uh, coming, in there, uh, coming in there with all this Chelsea shit. You know, I can't do that. The fourth dimension is such a beautiful, calm place, the realm of the spirit. Sometimes I even get frightened when I get in there that it's so good. But it means I have to stay in neutral. I have to live in neutral to live in the realm of the spirit because I'm not in charge of that realm. I'm just blessed to be able to be in it. So I should be grateful for that. You know, Didi graces me to fully feel her now, him now, it now. 
There's no genitalia involved. So my God is everything and all things. And if I ever understand it, then it's not big enough. I got to shoot for more, you know. I'm not spending countless hours now compiling information and sitting on it. You know, I'm not going to endless discovery expeditions on why, you know, the whys. Why, 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 why me, why me? No. Mm -mm. All those expeditions led me to this total land of, I don't know, make-believe, I guess. I don't know. But thank you, Didi. I thank you so much. All the investigations closed. Investigation closed. The evidence is in. <laughs> it's, it's set. You can sit down now. There's a solution. Sit down, Chelsea. Okay, we got this. Sit down. Your divine director got this. Um, the role of God has been cast. <laughs> you can sit down. And that's what I feel. I feel like, you know, I've been put in my place. And one of the things I had to do early on, early on, was to fire myself as the manager of my life because I did a hell of a messed up job. So that went. I got rid of self. Boom, you're gone. The death of self. Subtraction. The program of subtraction, right? March 16th. Wow, what a day. 2013. Three flimsy reads. Intertwined. 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 All bringing me a message. Getting through finally through that broken mind. Drop the baggage. You're sinking in quicksand, you know? You got big, heavy steamer trunks filled with wreck. Drop that shit. You know, I heard that message of hope, that message of depth and weight. I was disturbed and comforted. I'll never forget the feeling, and I'm glad I won't. Because I need to know where I came from so I don't go back there. And I need to be mine every day. That's what one day at a time means to me. One day at a time to grow spiritually. So that I'm fit. So that I'm ready to receive the grace. That's what it means to me one day at a time. One day at a time to work that spiritual muscle again. One day at a time to help somebody. One day that my living's not in vain. I used to sing that song, if I can help somebody as I go my way, then my living shall not be in vain. And my, I, I was, when I was going to share with this today, and this is the beauty of this program, I didn't know really where my, what, what I would say. Again, self wanted me to do a lot of hand-wringing and all this stuff. But God, as I understand God, my divine director Bless me to have none other than Miss Alice, Miss Alice, bring the comfort that I needed. She told me, don't, she said, if you build your house on solid ground, you're safe. She said, but don't do it without bringing God into the building process. Miss Alice said that to me. I had to move out, remember? I had to move out, couldn't live with her. So, you know, I'm still agnostic. I don't know if there is or if there isn't a God. Who knows? But I'm 100% clear that it's not me. And by that simple, simple thing, and going through this process, actually doing the work, I'm able then to say with a clear heart, Dee Dee, show me what you would have me be. I not only need God now, I want it. 
and I want to be oneness, and I want to stay in neutral so that I'm available and ready to receive the blessing, practicing all the 12 steps in all my affairs, every 24-hour period I'm given, every 24 hours that I'm graced with the clarity on how to live in this world as part of an ensemble cast, striving to have a servant's heart. It's not always easy to live in neutral, but you cannot be manipulated easily if you're struggling left, right, everywhere on your own. Build your house on the solid foundation. Make sure you bring God into it when you build it, when you build it. And I'm so grateful, so grateful. And for those of you out there on the line, this thing is something that we can grab hold of to save our lives so that we don't have to keep turning to whatever our addiction is, food, sex, drugs, shopping, gambling, all this stuff that rips us and robs us of whatever our future could have been. You know, today I, today I don't know whether I'll be able to ever sing again or not, but as we speak on this phone, I don't think I could carry a tune in a bag right now. But that's not for me to be upset about because my divine director will determine what my path will be and I will be ready to walk it. So I urge you, if you're on this line today and you're still digging in boxes and bags and uh, crying, using your tears as seasoning for your food, build your arch to freedom. Crack open this book, shut that mouth, fire yourself as the manager of your life, do what it takes, go through any lengths, and you too can tap into that source that it talks about, you know, that great reality, capital G, capital R, it's deep within us, you know, find it and actually do something to seek it out. And as you recover, once you're recovered, I'm noticing that I have to do it on a daily basis. And it just doesn't have to be the people in the rooms. It's in all our affairs, all of them. And for me, that includes Miss Alice. Thank you, Divine Director, for that. And it was so with me. This is how it was. And the sunlight of the Spirit is warm, forgiving, loving. You know, it's something that the kind of power that can flow regularly I don't want to have to turn to God. That means I've turned away at some point. I want to be in neutral so that I can be available for wherever God needs me to be of maximum service. Because through the grace of God, the mess, the mess that was my life has been turned into a message. And I'm so grateful for that. I'm grateful to be in the sunlight of this universe after all. So I get to be a shining light after all, you know. Thank you, Divine Director. And thank you, Visionaries, for the privilege of sharing with you today. I pass. Thank you so much, Chelsea, for bringing it to the line today. My goodness gracious, appreciate how candid you were in your storytelling today and the journey and the promises. What a powerful example of that transformation, that personality change. You know, it reminds me, of something that uh, Bill W. said to his own Ebby. On page 9, there's a couple of lines here that says, The door opened and he stood there, fresh-skinned and glowing. 
there was something about his eyes. He was inexplicably different. What a thing. What a story. Thank you again so much. Hey, Chelsea, are you up to a few moments, a few minutes of Q&A here? Sorry, I had to mute to blow my nose and get... (laughs) 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 Um, I'm up to do whatever I can. Again, my recovery is I'm, I'm fresh like a baby that's walking and everything, of course, with Dee Dee's help. But I'll do what I can. The stuff I can't answer, I'll just be honest and say I can't. You know, I'm new to it. How much can I, you know, I can do what I can. I can only share my experiences. Amen. Thank you. And I'm happy Thank to do you that. So much. You're welcome. Thank you, sir. <laughs> so we, we will move into the question and answer part of our study here today. And if you have a question... Please phrase it in the form of a question. We're going to play a little Jeopardy here. Uh, To Chelsea about her story of transformation, the spiritual awakening that she had. And who would be first to ask a question? Hi. My name is Dwayne. I share. Yes, Dwayne, go ahead. I would ask you to ask a question, please. We can share later, but ask a question, please, during this time. Thank you. Well, actually, I I wanted to know if I could get her, her, uh, her phone number. Um, we are going to provide that information after the recording has been stopped in interest of and in respect of anonymity, but we will sure. do that if you can stick around. Yeah, thank you. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. Anyone would like to ask a question of Chelsea today? Lauren S. from Pittsburgh. Hi, this is Hi, Lauren from New York. Oh. I'm going to uh, have Lauren go first from Pittsburgh, and then we'll have Sheila. Thank you. Oh, Lauren S recovered from compulsive overeating in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And um, Chelsea, I just I just could hear you forever and ever and ever because I just I just heard that voice of love so much. I just it was and my my question is um, you you mentioned making one of your first amends first group of amends you made were to people who you you felt were very um was it was a, almost like a severe amends they were very important to make you know they they weren't minor and i was wondering if you could discuss um an example of how your relationship changed with one of them after the amends sure oh yeah it actually does i mean i could discuss my experience of, with one of them would be my um youngest stepdaughter i um being a drunk and I, my first husband also was an alcoholic, and we just weren't stellar parents. And my youngest one now has since has had children and all, and we were estranged. We were estranged. And I'd gone and made amends to my first husband. I'd gone to his grave and all, and I ended up finding, uh, getting in touch with my stepdaughter on Facebook, actually. And we uh, just started talking I and I just I asked her if we could get together and I didn't even know she was going to bring the baby at that time and um, she said sure she had missed me and we hooked up and I this is even part more of the grace that went into this amends I went to my mother-in-law's house whom we did not get along I had an interracial marriage and my mother-in-law was pretty disgruntled with me um, you know, it was just a thing. But anyway, my da- uh, stepdaughter and I, we uh, talked. We had a meal. My mother-in-law made a beautiful meal of of all the things that I could have. And uh, I got to hold the baby. 
And I just said to her very, you know, and I had already gone through this with my guide before I made these amends. I had written them out and stuff. You know, we had a, we had a plan, so this way I wouldn't cause any more harm. And um, it was just more the moment took care of itself. But now, this is, I hadn't been involved in her life. It had to be for, uh, let's see, she's in her 30s. Now. It was like for at least uh, seven, let's see, 17, 17, yeah, about 17 years now. And she now is in touch with me. I get pictures of the baby. She took all kinds of pictures of me and posted them on her Facebook with me holding the baby. And she um, now sends me pictures of what's going on with the other kids and her husband. And I, I Thanksgiving time, I knew what was going on. And I, I just have been a part, part of her life now. I'm not trying to run it. I'm not trying to run it. I'm a part of it. And it cleared away a lot of the wreckage. It's not living in my head. Now I can think of it with fondness and not fear. And that is an amends that changed my life. That's an example of it, uh, Lauren. I hope that helps you, hon. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you, Chelsea. Sheila, you're next with a question. Hi, this is Sheila. Hi. Hi, Hi, honey. Thank you so much, so much, so much. I can't tell you how much I heard my story. Down to the singing in the gospel, my mom. (laughs) So much into that. My mom, I just got pictures of my mom on Sunday practicing with this gospel group in our house. And um, uh, all that talk will have to be offline, but there's so much identification. Um, To get to the question... Um, you want to be in neutral with God, and I'm wondering if that's you were able to do that when you put down the why, because God knows I've invested many years in trying to figure out why, mm-hmm. why, 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 to the point now I just surrender to the why. I just It doesn't make sense. I don't care. Right. I just want to move on. And, and I guess we all get to a point in recovery where the why just don't matter. The pain outweighs the why. And is that how you were able to become neutral around God? Because you know I, too, the God that I was raised up was a punishing God, and how dare you turn to anything and anyone else? Yeah, I can recognize, yeah. How, how dare you? And, and um, to be angry with God, to walk around being angry with God as long as I was, I just thought the raptors were going to come down on my head any day now. It was bound um, to be struck by something. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. of course, I feel you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's what we, so that was my question. Your neutrality around God, was that part of putting down your whys? Well, the whys were put down once I decided I was going to go through any means necessary. That was put uh-huh. down before I got, step 10 was the time I got more neutral um, you know, and it says actually on page 85, because I want to try to stick to the book of this, because again, I'm new in this. I can only share what I know and what I felt was it says on page 85, we feel as though we had been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. In a position of neutrality. That's the posture I need to obtain in order to feel safe and protected. So that, that to me, gave me my marching orders of what my posture would be as I'm dealing with the source greater than myself. But now I want to be in that posture. I guess that's the, um, you know, state of trying to be in neutrality. But, again, vestiges of self still come up. 
life still happens. It seems this has been my experience. The only difference now is I'm not turning to food or sex or drugs or alcohol to get ease and comfort. In fact, I'm turning, I'm following what the process is, and it tells me to pause, first of all, before I do anything. And sometimes I'm just directed to sit still and do nothing. Mm. You know, much like you remember when we were young and we'd get a sore or a scab or something, and your mom would tell you, stop picking it so it can heal. Mm-hmm. You know, just sit still. Sit your behind still. You're not running the show. The role of God has been cast. So that's that's how I try to stay. And again, it comes with doing my meditations. And again, that fourth dimension, that fourth dimension, getting in there. And all this is after you, that after you've had your experiences. You got to go through all the steps first of all. Yeah. You know that's that's really you know top priority. And then you know you get with you, you listen to other people, get involved. Don't just go for searching spiritual stuff. Have the experience, because the experiences are all we'll have. All this other shit, people been repeating and everything. All we're doing is repeating stuff that others have said, and that's what the book says. The book says, "Give freely of what you find." So therefore, our uniqueness has to come from our experiences, is what I'm learning. And I heard a speaker put it best. He said that. Um, spiritual experiences of what he was after. And uh, not only that, I just loved the speaker, but he had set aside a um, place for his time of meditation so that it could just be a God place, a little small place in his area. And don't you know, I copied that right quick. (laughs) These are the good things. Go ahead. Give away freely. You know, I want to give away, and I want to learn and have more experiences so that I'll have more to give away. Now I tell you, I'm as hungry for this girl as I was for a bucket of extra crispy. Okay? So, you know. Yeah, yeah, Sheila, you got to run after it hard, girl. Go for it. Well, I'm running. Thank you so much. Go ahead, girl, but get somewhere. Don't I will, and I will. I will call you later, and um, thank you so much. You too. It's nice to see you. Very helpful. Thank you for sharing your strength, hope, and faith, Chelsea. You too. Have a spiritually filled day, dear. Thank you, Sheila, for your question. Who else has a question for Sheila this morning? I mean, I'm sorry, for Chelsea this morning. Santa? Who's Santa? That's who I heard. Hi, Santa. And then I heard someone else. Can you repeat your name, please? Lori from Connecticut. Lori from Connecticut. So Santa first, and then Lori from Connecticut. Thank you. Chelsea, Chelsea, Chelsea. Hello, Santa. (laughs) You are amazing, phenomenal woman. As I'm sitting here listening to your story, I'm laughing the first 30 minutes, and I'm crying the last 30 minutes. Thank you so much. My question... Well, let's thank the creator, because in and of myself, I'd be somewhere eating right now. And truthfully, in and of myself, I'd have a fifth or a quart, so... It's nothing that I do in and of myself, and I want to make that clear so that self doesn't start trying to get an ego on this. But go ahead, sweetie pie. What's up? Amen. I, I, felt, <laughs> I, felt, I felt I was at that Baptist church, honey. <laughs> My question is that you you definitely, definitely show in, in a woman of great gratitude, and you show that all the time when I hear you. My question is, um, you talk about staying in neutral. Can you explain briefly what is your typical daily ritual is like as a recovered compulsive overeater? Um, what do you do every day? 
I mean, how do you do your morning rituals to get yourself spiritually fit for the day and to maintain that? What are the tools that you use? Can you share some of that with us, please? With that, I'll pass. Thank you. Well, thank you for the question. I'm going to go at it this way. My rituals and all and how I do them and everything are of no consequences. It's that I do them. Each person is going to have to develop what works for them. My way of doing it may work for me. So really for me to go into the mechanics of what I do is, is kind of a lesson in futility because you will have to develop your own things. Seek out what you will do. What I do, the mechanics of it, again, will not be, may not be part, may be part of your program, but it's not going to be yours. These are personal programs. I'm learning that each individual and their personal relationships, see, we're establishing a relationship with power. And as such, you'll have to figure out what your neutral is. And where I showed you I got that neutral from was page 85. So the the thing is, is that we need to practice prayer and meditation. You know, step 11 so we need to grow that, and the um, way that I think you go about it is, again, getting your own house in order and figuring out, working with your sponsor and stuff. Develop your own way. My, how I do it and everything, again, the mechanics are not going to be, um, yeah, I mean, it may be nice conversation if we have a cup of coffee sometime, but for the reality is, is that it's the act of the prayer and the meditation that you'll need to do. So I think that would be more important information for you to have so that you can get rolling on your own form of what's going to work for you. I can tell you that I do it, and I can tell you that I'm more and more each day I'm learning that I have to make it the focal point in order for me to stay in, like it says on page uh, 85, uh, state of neutrality like that in that position that position of neutrality, in order for me to stay there, is required. It's actually required that I do all this work in all my affairs. And, again, it just keeps bringing us back to these steps have to be implemented. And then you have to embark on a spiritual enlargement. So that's really the way that I can only answer that. I hope that helps you, Santa. Thank you, Santa. Lori, what is your question for Chelsea? Oh, Chelsea, uh, this is Lori from Connecticut, and I came in, um, I had gone to Mass, um, and I came in halfway, um, I heard half of the story, but uh, your message just totally told, you told my story, and um, I uh, am just so grateful, I'm a grateful compulsive overeater today, I can honestly say that, you know, I uh, started in Overeaters Anonymous back in 1990 in um and then I came back in, like, 97, 98, 99, mm-hmm. and, and I was more heavier. You know, I had gained weight since then. Of course. Mm-hmm. And then I um, now came back, um, and I'm coming back, and I have a food sponsor that I call every day. And um, the bottom line is my question to you is I have a food sponsor, and I call my breakfast, lunch, and dinner in every day, but I'm struggling. I'm struggling with the sloppiness. You know, sometimes I get sloppy. I have all my fruits and vegetables, you know, my, my abstinent plan, the, vet, the, fruit, the good food that I eat today um, and whatnot. But when I say I get sloppy, Chelsea, it's like, oh, God, you know, like, for instance, next week I'm having 
the girls over for movie night. Well, long story short, I have peanuts in the house right now, and it's like, oh, God, go bring them up to the neighbor because you know if you tack the peanut, you know, this kind of thing. So, like, last night I had a handful of peanuts, and I was so proud of myself, and I was satisfied. But sometimes I still binge. Do you still find yourself binging? No, I don't have a need to. Why? I don't have a need to because, again, I've gone through the process. It sounds like you haven't gone through the process. I'm on step four with my big book step study, so I'm doing the process. I'm excuse me. I'm yeah. I'm doing it. I'm doing the work now. Well, my experience was that if I'm on step four and I'm still digging in food, whether it's intermittent or not, if I'm actually going through, you know, the motions of picking it up and putting it in my mouth, whether it's a handful or one peanut, why are they in your home? You 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 need to get your inventory in check with that. You need to go back to step one because it seems, sounds to me like you're not really clear about this powerless issue. Okay. Thank you. Uh, well, who's your sponsor? You said you had a sponsor? I have a food, a, bit, a food sponsor. Yes, I do. Well, who, are you walking through the process with somebody? Who's walking you through, this, through the program? Through the process with a big book step study group for AA. I'm also a Again, recovery. you know, I don't want to get involved with whose food plans and all that because it's, this whole thing is not about food or any weight or any of that shit. The thing is, is that you need to walk through this, crack open this book, walk through the process, put the food down. Okay. Immediately go after the steps. That's up to you whether you want to call your food in or anything like that. But I can share this with you. What I'm finding my experience as an alcoholic, as a recovered alcoholic, I don't have to call my drinks into anybody. And I drink every day. Okay. I don't have to call somebody in the morning and say, I'm going to have coffee, I'm going to have a glass of water. Maybe at lunchtime I might have a, uh, um, a cup of milk. I don't know. I might end up having a diet soda. And then for dinner, I'm going to have three glasses of water, but I'm actually I'm going to have three and a half glasses of water. That's not happening for me. That's not my experience as an alcoholic. Okay. Walking through this process, following the directions, and again, some of the things I outlined, immersing yourself in recovery. Wash yourself in recovery because okay. you need to, if you're at step four and you're still dealing with this ambiguity, then really? you've still got some, you've got some cleanup on aisles one, two, and three. One, two, and three. Okay. Thank okay. You. And check with you. Get a sponsor. Somebody okay. to help you with this. Okay, dear. Chelsea. Mm-hmm. Have a Thank good. you, Laurie. Who else has a question for Chelsea this, is, this morning? This is Jackie. I like. I have a question. Okay. Thank you, Jackie. Yes, Chelsea. Thank you so much for your story. Um, beautiful, beautiful story. Um, I know um, for me, uh, um, I got started based on a, a young lady calling my house and giving me nine words to look up and it was a beautiful thing and um the and it's like you said in um Ebby's story, uh Bill saw that um Ebby was all fresh skinned and that and that's what I saw in the young lady who called me that day when I was looking for a vision for you sponsor. My question to you is this on page sixty three it says that we have a new employer. Can you explain to a lot of people on the line who that new employer is and what their role is um as long as they uh, are in this program, and and I, and I think that would be good for a lot of people to hear if if you can share on that. And you're on page uh, 63. 63, the new employer, yes. Who's who the new employer? What paragraph what so we can go to it? 
Oh, okay. I'm sorry. That's okay. In case other people want to turn, I want to be right on where you're at here, and I don't want to read all through. Okay, I got it. We had a new employer. Right. And, and, And can you explain to them who that new employer is, and once they find out who their new employer is, what role do they take on? Uh, in this in this uh, program, if you can explain that. Well, I think, uh, yeah, thanks for the question, too. And I'm grateful that it's in the book, so this way I can stick to the book. <laughs> because, it, actually, if we backtrack a little to 62, where it says this is the how and why of it, it kind of lays it out there. First of all, we had to quit playing God. It didn't work. Okay, we had to quit playing God. Next, we decided that here and after in the drama of life, God was going to be our director. He is the principal. We are his agents. He is the father and we are his children. I I think it lays it out pretty clearly now. Our new employer is God because we had to quit playing that role. That's why I say we had to fire ourselves. We had to fire ourselves as the employer, the manager of our lives, you know. We did it, it says we failed utterly under, under the uh, marshalling of our own will. So it's pretty clear. <laughs> we had to make a decision to stop making decisions, as my guide likes to say. I love it, love it. So, yeah, this is the posture that we're assuming we're getting now, and it's telling us that um, we had a new employer, so since we've been fired, and our new employer, as it tells us on 62, is God, God was going to do it. God was the principal. We're his agents. That's letting you know right there. He's the employer. We're the employees, if you will, to keep that uh, analogy going. And that, um, Jackie, is what that means to me about the employer and understanding that the employer is, in fact, God. So you're... Uh, Answer is given on page 52, okay? Yes, and, and, and I agree, and I, I just wanted you to uh, put that out there for, you know, oh, people who... Oh, thank you. Thank slip. you. I appreciate yeah. it, too. For, for the ones that continue to slip, and, and I really appreciate you doing that, because uh, until I got that and understood what my role was mm-hmm. in this program, you know, when I stopped uh, trying to sponsor myself and... and, and uh, Thank you, Jackie. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. I I, just in the interest of we have several other people that would like to ask a question. That um, if we could just keep our our question real real to the point and direct and and concise and and um, and maybe the story around it uh, maybe could be eliminated. We do have several other people that do have questions here. So in the interest of time, Chelsea has a limited amount of time. If we could just get right to our question. Thank you. Thank you so much. And who just said hello? Hi, I'm Victoria. I have a question. Okay, Victoria, go straight to your question. Thank you. Yes, thank you very much. Um, my question is, how how do you recommend someone get started when they're just going through the motions? I'm just going through the motions. I've been listening to meetings for four years, but maybe I do have a cleanup on aisles one, two, and three. I just don't know how to get started into the actually working the program. I pass. Um, I would just suggest that you, you know, get in contact with someone who's recovered that can walk you through the process. That's, that's what I You've got to walk through the process. Crack open the book, do what you're told, and, and get busy. You know, that's all I can really offer you. 
Thank you, Victoria. Thank you, Chelsea. Who else has a question? Straight to our question, please. I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. This is Denise from East Tennessee. And Holly from Connecticut. I heard Holly, but I thought, did I hear Faith? Is that what I heard, Faith? It's Denise. Denise. Denise, go ahead with your question, please, and then Holly can go next. Oh, Chelsea, I was in tears listening to your story. Honestly, I could relate so closely to the family dynamic. I'm curious about the meetings you go to and how you um, interact with people at those meetings who are are less focused on the big book and more focused on all the different varieties of literature that OA produces. And I'll pass. Thank you. Well, thanks for the question, because I actually experienced that and um, on a regular basis, because there's a lot of influence you know, different groups, different factions and all. So what I do is I try to bring whatever material they're using back to the big book. And my shares, I don't go in, I did in the beginning because I was overzealous. I was so overzealous in the beginning because I was so, you know, grateful and thrilled to have the message. I was like just thumping people on the head with the book. But then, again, centering myself with Didi, I was able to get more clarity on what my role would be around this type of issue. And I know the other material, too. I don't shy away from it because I need to know how to convert it to the big book because I'm not going to water down my message. So I'll bring theirs into my message. And whatever they're reading, because this, this is for life. This is stuff for life. So it's not just restricted to the rooms. These phrases, these different, all the stuff in the text, everything in the text can be applied. So, for example, I work with one um, person that uses that OA 12 and 12. And I spend a lot of time going back and forth from that to my big book so I can know how to bring whatever I want to say. Because they, they have a lot, all those are based on the big book. So, you know, I can go right to the source and I can figure out what I need to do to work with this person until I actually, to be honest with you, wean them off of it so that they can use it as supplemental material, not the, you know, crux of what they need for their program. And I applaud all of it because, again, if you can get to the solution with just using that stuff, like the big book says, hats off to you. But my experience shows that this book, this big book has all the directions and everything, and, again, the other material is based on it. So I I learn how to go back and forth with it. I learn how to um, bring the big book via whatever material they're using. So, and that's how I share through it. And since it's coming from the heart, and I'm asking to be useful, so that way I can make the connection, the divine director always delivers. So I hope that helps you. Thank you, Denise. Holly, ask your question, too. And that will be the last one in, in respect of the time that Chelsea has. Holly, with your question, please. Thank you, everyone, for your service. I'm Holly, compulsive overeater. Mike, first, thank you very much for your your experience, strength, and hope. I could identify a lot. My question is, um, is it uncommon or is it common? I, I heard clearly switching seats on the Titanic, you know, and <laughs> I've done that. Um, and I've tried to remain food abstinent and sober in uh, using other 12-step fellowships. Is it common to need to keep them separate, get a OA sponsor and go through the big book for food or I didn't, what is your experience with that? I'm sorry, I'm not clear on what the question is. 
I'm just not clear. I mean, you shared that you've switched seats on the Titanic. So I want to know: Did you go through the big big book at you know the first 164 pages, referring to food with a food sponsor? No, I, I didn't deal with any food sponsors, and my food was down by the time I, you know, <laughs> cracked open this book. I had, I had had a couple of you know I had been abstinent. But I'm really not clear on what what you're trying to ask me. I guess, and uh, I, again, since I'm not really involved with food plans and that type of stuff, no. I really don't want to get into all that area. Um, no. If you want to call me and talk offline or something, maybe we can get a little bit more into depth with okay. what you're trying to ask me. Okay. Right. I'll do that. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, and thank you to everyone that had questions today, and um, most especially Chelsea. Thank you for um, being so candid you know, and bringing your particular journey to this to this line. It was very powerful. Thank you again. Thank you all for having and me, and I'm just grateful. Absolutely. For absolutely. absolutely. And we're going to close today like we do all of our Sunday special edition meetings with the um, page 164 of our big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it says, our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and we will surely meet some of you as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.